Did anyone ever tell you that it's rude to talk about money? Well, I think the opposite is true for graduate students. I think we should be talking more about how much we make and where the money comes from. Do graduate students get paid to go to school? Where does that come from? Do we still apply for scholarships? What even are grants? Okay, so we are back for our second season. It's been it's been great to be back with the crew again. Mm -hmm. uh, and for those of you that have been following along with us since season one, and maybe for those of you that even know us in person, know uh, Emily's been in a really long relationship for a while. <laughs> like, like she's had a fiance, but she doesn't have a fiance anymore. Uh, Emily, like, please, please this explain. This is the most dramatic thing I've ever heard. <laughs> we had to make it dramatic. Okay, we had to make it dramatic. And David, as you, that was who randomly showed up in our TikTok that we made. Um, yes. We are now married. We got married last Friday. Woo! So A beautiful, beautiful wedding. He's still wedding. around, but yes. no longer a fiancé. Yes, yes, no longer a fiancé, a husband. <laughs> beautiful wedding. As my family would like to say, he's now my ex-boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is true. No, yes. Not, yeah. No longer that. Because now, right, like, don't they say, like, friends and boyfriends and, but husbands doesn't end in... E and D, so yeah. it doesn't end. So yeah. it's forever. There yeah. we go. There we go. We're we're keeping David around. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. We love to see it. Maybe he'll feature in more TikToks. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Who knows? He'll Who do knows? a TikTok takeover. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's around. But uh, the rest of us did not get married. We were at the wedding, um, <laughs> but but we were uh, blissfully watching from the sidelines. So where where's everyone else at with their semester? You know, this is has got to be the busiest I've ever been. I think once this week is over. It'll be a breath of fresh air. Famous off. last words. <laughs> Famous. Everyone always thinks next week is going to next be week. better. Uh, but actually, uh, Odalis and I have been working on something that we turned in recently, and it was a major grant proposal, which we will talk about later in the bulk of this episode. But Alex, what are you up to since uh, the your proposal was defended, which yeah. we mentioned in the Ooh. first episode? We've been, at least for my thesis, I've been in the trenches of collecting participant data, trying to figure out if I'll see the effects that I hypothesized or not. And then I'll link this on the website, but I started my science communication career on the Cogbytes blog, and recently they published a interview with me. Feel free to go over to Cogbytes and check it out. Look at us doing exciting stuff. Look at us doing exciting stuff. Talking about grants, talking about money. So I guess we'll talk about uh, how we all get paid, which is yep. something that already just feels uncomfortable because didn't people tell you, like, don't talk yeah, about how much money. money you make. Like, <laughs> like don't <laughs> tell people. But I think it's important in the grand scheme of graduate school to talk about where that money comes from because... It can be a make or break decision for people as they're choosing yeah. which program they want to go to, which school they want to go to. So maybe we can talk about where we're at with that right now. Like what I am personally on what's called a TA ship. So I am a teaching assistant. And so my money comes from the department I'm in, which is biology. And I am paid to be a teaching assistant with my advisor right now. So that is... With that also comes a tuition waiver, so I don't have to pay tuition, but you still have to pay student service fees. So there's still payment going to 
the institution. So I am on a TA ship this semester. What about everyone else? You know, I'm in a funny situation where I'm kind of, at least for the duration of the semester, am a part-time TA and a part-time RA. So um, it seems for the most part, our workload is um, limited to 20 hours or so. We're contracted to work. So I am currently um, like 10 hours a teaching assistant and 10 hours a research assistant. Speaking about RA shifts, which is a research assistant ship, um, I am, have been on an RA shift all of last year and all of this year and probably all of next year too, as long as our grant continues. So um, as an RA, your grant funding comes from, or your funding comes from a grant. Um, and so I work 20 hours a week doing research. Um, I'm in the lab full time, one-on-one with participants, one-on-one um, -on -one with our RAs, um, which I absolutely love, but that's a little bit different from that TA ship, so I don't get the experiences as a TA, um, which I feel like is a kind of a big difference because it's quite a big difference, but mm -hmm. um, those are kind of like the main differences, just where your funding is coming from and what you're primarily um, responsible for. Yeah, it's either kind of like front of classroom responsibilities. So as a biology TA, I was in charge of three different lab sections, and so I was grading three different sections, so about 72 students going to class, giving the presentation, leading these activities. Um, whereas an RA, it seems like you are working on like one of your advisor's projects. It should be noted that it is like those kind of projects yeah. and not like your dissertation projects. Those are not funded through the department. Those are different. Those are your degree. <laughs> those are your degree. Yeah. You got to work for those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just a full-time TA where I just, I mostly am in the support role for the people that I work with. So I like grade and occasionally I'll be like in the classroom helping with review days. But most of the time I'm just working on Blackboard and working through spreadsheets to support my professors. That should be noted. The difference in TA ships can be different from department to department depending on what the what the classes look like. And so because biology is such a hands-on lab, they have to be in the labs, TAs are responsible for a little bit more on like their end. Yeah, is... and even to that, from, from class to class, I was actually in a funny situation last year. I was TAing two different um, developmental site courses, both of them very different. So this really, what that TA ship may look like for you may be very different than what it looks like for one of us. So it's kind of up in the air. I'd say the best part that comes out of both a TA ship and an RA ship is that stipend. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So not only do you not have to pay tuition, but you do get a little bit of money every month. It's not a lot. Don't don't get me wrong. It's it's not a lot. Um, and I think we will always push for more money for graduate students, but it is enough to get by. It gets, it gets I, I'll put the enough in quotation marks. I mean, it was, italics, it's better like, than my previous jobs, and yeah. I was exactly, working yeah. more yes. with my previous job. Yeah. So it is, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I worked paycheck to paycheck, grinding gig work just to afford my apartment, and it is a lot less stressful. Plus, I'm actually like doing what I want to do with the stipend. Yeah, so that's definitely a plus. It's, um, for the most part, it's more than I've ever earned, and, you know, it's doing something that is also in the long term benefiting us what we would be doing in a career with this higher degree that we're looking or we're pursuing. So Yeah, so I would say with the TA ships, RA ships, stipends, tuition waivers, if you're looking at going to graduate school, those are really important things to ask a graduate student about. 
Are you on a TA ship? Are you on an RA ship? How much money are you getting every month? And are you getting that tuition waiver are all really important considerations that make graduate school a little more achievable. So it was mentioned that Odalis and I just finished uh, putting in an application for graduate research fellowship program. program. Yes, the GRFP. It's usually referred to GRFP, so I never remember what those letters stand for. Oh, yeah. And so this is a pretty prestigious fellowship program through um, the National Science Foundation. Oh, the NSF. And, um, it is uh, five of the hardest pages I think you can ever yeah. write. If you only get five pages, three for a personal statement, two for a research statement, and then you have three letters of rec. And it is, it's a lot of work, totally. but the money you get from it. I think that makes it really worth What did you say someone told you how much it was I think worth? My advisor, she was like trying to put it in perspective to me. She's like, yeah, you know, like you've been working on this really hard. And she's like, if you were to get it, oh my God. So don't completely trust me on these numbers because we just did some math off the top of my head. And this is a number that's coming. But it's like every page would be worth about $22,000 for your work on that $22,000. Like, dang. And this is a program that changes with every like administration. And so like the Biden administration did just put a little bit more funding toward this program and so more awards will be coming out. And so this is a program that I did want to mention on this podcast because some of you that are listening may be eligible to apply for this next year and you don't even know it right. because people who are in their undergrad finishing up and looking at graduate schools, you should apply for this you program. Like that gives you an extra It gives you an attempt. extra try. Yeah. Like you can apply I think up to two times and mm-hmm. the first time is when you're an undergrad. And then you can only apply, I think, or once when you've started graduate school. But once you've started, you only get one try. Yes. Once exactly. you've done a year of graduate school, you get one try. So, Odellis and I have one yeah. try. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, fingers crossed, we will know more in March or April. Yeah, it's seeming yeah. more like April, but it's a very prestigious fellowship. If you were to get it, you know, this just is very, you know, just a big deal. Yes, and we will link to the information page for this fellowship on our website. So if you are interested in looking into it more, if you want to go into graduate school and you think, hey, maybe I could some, could uh, secure some funding before mm-hmm. I even go, you should check it out before you go. And so I think it's also great that you mentioned that this is a fellowship program because right. a lot of times fellowships are funding you. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily funding the project. But proposing that project goes towards... It shows that you have the capabilities that they're looking for to, yes. you know, merit this, like, money that you would... Yes. That would inform, you know, your, just your, gra- your graduate career. Yes. But if you don't end up doing that project, it's not the end of the world. And you can, you can keep going. Things, you'll still yeah. get the funding. It's mm-hmm. okay. Whereas grants, which we also have mentioned quite a bit, are really funding the project. And these, a lot of our advisors have some incredible experience writing grants. And we are going to get there eventually. And I don't know, has anyone applied for a grant yet? Like on their own? No. No. That's coming. That will happen. It's definitely more like an early career. You start working on those type of things. It seems now it's more of a fellowship as a focus. Yes. But it gives you those valuable grant writing skills that you would need later in your career. So that once you're writing grants, you're ready to actually talk about the project you want to use that grant for so you can fund your own graduate students. Yeah. Someday. Yeah. Ah, the goals. (laughs) So we've talked a lot about money and mentioned a few places where the money comes from. So we've talked about the NSF, um, 
that provides funding for some of these fellowships. But And I think we also mentioned that we get funding from our graduate school. Um, funding can also come from departments. And so, like, my funding is different from all y'all's funding in psychology because we're in different departments. Mm-hmm. So money comes, you know, from a lot of places at different stages uh, that you might be in your education. It could come from different places. I've been fortunate enough to get uh, various uh, amounts of funding from different sources throughout my educational career. For example, like we all know, the theme is here. Graduate school is expensive. Um, As an undergrad, I was lucky enough to be admitted into the McNair Scholars Program, which... um, I've mentioned this before in the past, uh, we can link it if that's helpful. Yes. So they help you get research experience and help you through the graduate school application process. And with that, because I am a low-income uh, student, I, you know, it gave me some of the criteria to be admitted into this program, and I was able to get tremendous amounts of tuition waivers. Uh, keyword waiver, yeah. I don't have to pay. Yes. So... That was very helpful because that, you know, that gave me the best opportunity to apply to various graduate programs. And it's been very helpful. But, you know, that theme of we need money. We always need money. Where's the money coming from? Getting into graduate school, I also applied for the Ford Fellowship. Um, They have a similar mission in that they want to fund historically underrepresented students. And so I applied to that and I was fortunate enough to get an honorable mention for that fellowship as well. And I hope to reapply for this fellowship in particular. You can reapply. So, although unfortunately, it seems that they are discontinuing this fellowship. But if you have the opportunity, I would say apply to this still. You can apply as a senior as well. So try to get in in this bucket of money while you still can. It's a great opportunity, especially for those from minoritized communities. It's also important to note that even though you got an honorable mention, which means you don't get, I don't the, get the money, money. You don't get the money. Right. It's still something that you can add to your CV, your resume, yes. so that it's it's still an important and a prestigious thing to even get an honorable it mention. Because it does mean that your application was more impressive than yeah. a certain percentage of the applicants. So. Yes, they're kind of just recognizing that your application was very good. But, you know, they can only have so much money. They can only fund so many people. That was probably one of my proudest moments so far, and it's it's great, but I would definitely um, encourage everybody to apply for it while you still can and, and get in on this. It's a great opportunity. And it also gives you experience writing. For sure, these, yes. These things, which I think you guys even took a grant writing mm-hmm. course, if mm-hmm. I am correct. Yep. Yes, we were fortunate enough to take that in our first year, and it's been very helpful, at least for me, in applying for those fellowships. So ask for help from people that may know more about writing grants because it is different than any kind of writing. And definitely ask uh, the faculty members as many of them have probably served as reviewers for things like the NSF GRFP and they have that insider's view into like, hmm, this is kind of what we're looking for. You should add this here and that can be very helpful in your application. Yeah, so especially if you're an undergrad that maybe you aren't working with a faculty advisor as closely as you do in graduate school. Talk to your professors and, mm-hmm. like, bounce ideas off of them and get comments on your writing because it, hypothetically, will only help you. So we, like we said, we are getting through these application processes and it is not going to be our last grant application no. for sure. We are going into careers where we depend on writing grants and getting mm-hmm. grants and so I think it's important even earlier than start. we started mm-hmm. to start thinking oh, yeah. about how you're going to go about writing these 
extremely important uh, $22,000 page documents. <laughs> um, so I know, I think, Odalis, you started last year even thinking about your GRFP, right? Yes, I actually, and if you can find something similar at your institution, I would definitely encourage you to do so. I found like kind of like a GRFP prep course that helped me. Uh, those experiences can vary, but for the most part, they kind of know what they're talking about and they can tell you at least the big do's and don'ts because even stuff like font and margins matter. And they'll know, you know, if you're off on your margin, that there goes your whole application. Yeah. So you want to be aware of these things. So find the people that are knowledgeable. Yes. And it's important to know when to take advice and when not to take advice because That's also very true. I had the opposite experience with my right. GRFP prep course. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had two individuals that someone asked us to like share one of the research experiences we were putting in our personal statement. So the personal statement for the GRFP is like you're explaining all of your experiences and mm-hmm. motivations up to why you want to go into science, why you want to do this project and those kinds of things. And so mm-hmm. I was talking about a bioinformatics project I did where I characterized a gene and then built a Wikipedia page for it. The Wikipedia page is still up. I can link it. I'm so (laughs) proud of it. And the person that was running this GRFP info session told me that that research experience was so insignificant because I didn't answer a question. Okay? He used those words. (laughs) Like, he he called a project insignificant, which, right? Mm -hmm. Which... Especially coming from an older man in science to me, a new younger woman coming up in science was really disheartening. And luckily, I have such a great advisor that I was able to debrief this conversation with her. And she was like, yeah, they don't really seem like they get your project and maybe they aren't worth your time. So it's important to know when to take advice and when not to take advice because that project actually is really important to my identity as a scientist. And I think that also kind of goes into... You, the part of writing these is you you've really got to phrase these as to what they meant to you what you were doing with this how this changed your thinking in a way how it's preparing you to be a researcher so this is that was a great example somebody can see that and it's like why would you think that when they did all of this for me so it's great that you knew when to not take that advice and go through with it because I think it's a wonderful experience yeah and that experience also led me to get feedback from different people instead of these people that were getting paid to review my GRFP and then I just didn't use them anymore but talking to people like if you know someone that has gotten the GRFP before is would be someone super helpful to get feedback from I am lucky enough that I absolutely adore my lab group and so I was able to take two of our weekly lab meetings and get a bunch of feedback from them which was awesome and I think made my application much better and it also gave me deadlines <laughs> uh, yeah I think it's really a lot of self-regulation when you're doing these because it might seem sometimes when you're first starting on them or planning on applying that they're so far away it's like oh but it's a lot of work that goes into these you really want to be able to self-regulate what you're doing how you're working when you get it done yeah because like back in June Oh, yeah. October 18th felt so far away. Yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly it was, like, September, September 30th. Yeah. And I was like, okay, like, this actually, like, like mm-hmm. it needs to get done. Yeah. This is going to get turned the, the in. Pace, yeah. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very um, intensive process. But, you know, it really, 
it's almost like you get to exercise this very important skill that you'll need and you know if you get it wow that much better you know twenty two thousand dollars for page yeah. you know it makes it really worth it and another one of the perks is that now that i have completed this i have an outline for what i want to propose for my dissertation so it helps you get those ideas out early yes i would definitely say and kind of backtracking a little bit to my ford application last year it was kind of like I'm fresh into graduate school. I'm kind of barely getting a bearing into what I want to do. Yeah. And, you know, working through this and, like, thinking it through with my advisor, it was such a great experience because it just kind of forced me to, like, plan out what I wanted to do. And now it's like I have a concrete plan of what I want to do, projects I want to complete, and it's great. It just, it really gives you an opportunity to really make active plans that you can speak to as to how this is going to make you grow as a researcher, as a scientist. And it was a very rewarding process, even just writing them, really. So if you leave this episode with, like, any anything, it's that, one, apply for the GRFP if you're eligible, which the NSF does have an eligibility quiz oh, yes. that helps you determine whether or not you're eligible. So that's number one. Number two, it's okay to not know exactly what you want to do right when you start graduate yes. school, that these... Various grants and fellowship proposals can help you yes. figure that out. Okay, so I recently was looking through some of the scientific journals, and I came across this really interesting study that was published in the most recent edition of the Journal of Creativity Research. And it discusses the potential influences of writer's block, and then they included some of the proposed solutions that can help you kind of overcome writer's block. And so I thought it'd be interesting to discuss. So the way that this paper defined what writer's block was, it was a period during which a writer is unable to produce new material. And this falls under creativity research because creativity in a very general sense is just creating something that is new and useful. And so investigating when the process of writing and then whenever that process kind of breaks down and you get stuck is really important in order to help promote creativity and also just help people every day because, you know, writer's block happens to every single person. And so this was a type of survey research where they just sent out questionnaires to different writers and they uh, then categorized the results and we were able to get some interesting data out of it. So the study surveyed 146 writers, including 29 professional writers, and they self-reported, meaning the writers that completed this survey reported that they experienced writer's block the most when they experienced some form of psychophysiological experience. And some examples of this were the participants uh, indicated that they have a high life stress, they have general anxiety and depression leading to burnout, and that's typically when they identified that they just had writer's block. The second most common cause was motivational factors, where the writers felt some evaluation anxiety, where they felt anxiety that their ideas would be viewed negatively or reveal something socially undesirable, and so they weren't sure of how to phrase things or where to put it, and eventually their writing just 
broke down and completely halted. And the third most common cause of writer's block that they identified was perfectionism and difficulties related to a piece of writing itself rather than any outside influence. Relatable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> right? And I just like found this paper really interesting because it is just like everyone can relate to it like you know wanting to make sure your writing is good enough but it prevents you from getting it out at all and one interesting point is that these part of the survey is they asked the participants how long typically like does writer's block last for you and they said that it can last for a few days and a few indicated that it can last a few weeks and thinking back to when i was writing my thesis i'm like yeah Absolutely. There were entire sections of what I was writing that just I couldn't get for weeks on end. And so the next part of the survey study that I really appreciated was they asked the participants, what did they do to overcome the writer's block? And the most common strategies were taking a break from writing, work on a different project, or keep writing. And now I want to add my own little note about this, because I first started beginning my research career by investigating creativity along similar lines. But I investigated something called mental fixation and incubation periods, or when you're trying to problem solve, but you're not able to, your brain gets basically stuck, and that's mental fixation. And the way to overcome mental fixation is by taking what's called an incubation period, but that's basically a short break. And an interesting part of that type of creativity research is that most people have identified that they would prefer to work continuously to try to work through the problem, but creativity research actually shows that that is an ineffective strategy. And taking a break not only will help you overcome the block, but it can actually help you reach a better solution than you would have had if you tried working continuously. And so my take home message with this kind of research is writer's block is very common and there's lots of influences, but some of the best ways to overcome writer's block is to take a break. Either take a literal break of walking away for five minutes, but then also give yourself a break. Don't be too hard on yourself because the writing's gonna get done. It's gonna happen, and it'll You're be an sure of that. yeah, <laughs> and it'll be an easier process if we don't help along the anxiety and the perfectionism, because that has been shown with this study to hurt the writing process. So I mentioned at the beginning that I do think it's important that graduate students talk about this more, and it's because there are a lot of things that affect the value of money, right? And so we've probably all heard in the news about, you know, gas prices are out of control and inflation is, you know, causing things to be a little more difficult. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little difficult. So there's, there are two very recent articles that have come from some pretty prominent scientific journals that talk about how, like, inflation is hurting everyone, but the stipends of graduate students haven't changed. And so it's hurting those of us that are on kind of that fixed stipend income even more. And so talking about it and bringing attention to it, I think is an important step towards getting it to be recognized more. And even one of the studies even like name dropped one of the universities that my one of my very best friends is going to and getting her PhD. And 
there's a, there's a figure, so I'll link this paper on the website, but there's a figure that talks about where U.S. biology PhD students can and can't get by, and her institution is one of the very last on this figure. And so what she is getting as a minimum salary is nowhere near what they expect the cost of living to be. And the institution we're at is not too far away from what that institution is paying their graduate students. So I think it's an important conversation that we all need to talk about more, despite what people have told you. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to, like, concentrate on what you're doing, giving it your all if, you know, you're missing some of your basic needs. So it's definitely an important topic, something to heavily consider when you're applying to graduate schools and, you know, you get those acceptance letters with maybe some numbers about what that stipend might look like. You have to consider the cost of living there if it's going to, you know, be detrimental. If you could have outside sources of money that can maybe supplement that, it's something very important to consider. An important note is a lot of departments and universities actually prohibit you from having a second job, mm-hmm. which doesn't help the situation. You know, mm-hmm. ideally you wouldn't have to work a second job, but then there's that to look into, so definitely look look into all the things. All the things. Another thing that's really important to consider is you fall under different tax categories and like I'm not an accountant, so like don't don't get me on this, but we're Speaking from personal experiences yes. that I have talked to my, my peers here about, I enrolled in credits last summer, and so I was still considered a student, and so I was still getting paid and taxed as a student. We, on the other hand, did not. <laughs> and we saw that in our paychecks. You know, it may even not seem like a lot in every individual paycheck, but if you do the math, you know, it takes a good chunk of your money, and, you know, you you need the money. <laughs> The money is needed. You, you you still need to buy groceries in the summer, even if you're not a student. So it's you want to look into the the big adult stuff and know what you're getting yourself into. Enrolling like credits, health credits. insurance, and health insurance. <laughs> Speaking yes. of adult stuff, some universities. I'm gonna put some in italics and quotes with asterisk, whatever you want. Some universities <laughs> offer health insurance for their students. Luckily, I can still be on my parents, but uh, we have one individual on the podcast that can no longer be on her parents, and so I know that was something to navigate. Yeah, Marry a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you know, look, look into that as well. As much as you can, it's not a guarantee, but at the very least, keep it in mind, it'll be something you'll have to navigate. If, you know, you're somebody that does happen to get ill very often. But the medical mysteries was literally in your husband's vows. Okay, yeah. like like it was literally in the vows. It is at the bedrock of your marriage that he will be with you through all of the, all medical, the medical mysteries, mysteries. which also yeah. includes sharing his health insurance. So social media is, you know, great, not great. It can be what you make it. And so I, at the advice of my advisor, have made a Twitter that's specifically for like being with other academics and so following academic things, which is a place that you can find information about various scholarships, fellowships, job postings, and new and exciting research happening, which I think all of us do have academic Twitters. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you can find us on Twitter. Yeah, tweeting cool stuff. 
Like and cat photos. Like and cat, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's retweeting. More like retweeting cool yeah, stuff. Well, <laughs> Dallas tweets some really cool stuff and is doing some cool outreach stuff, so. Yeah, and, you know, we, we like to showcase what we do. Um, I know I found, like, a very interesting person um, that we have very similar research interests in and, like, we hope to keep in touch, you know. Um, so it's a really great place to do that, connect with people and learn about what others are doing and you can show others what you're doing. Okay, y'all. Quick refresher. So I found an ebook that said they had a list of 51 terms the authors thought students should leave their intro bio class knowing. This was allegedly in the appendix of the book, which did not appear in the online ebook copy, so I requested the book through the school library. Our school did not have a copy, but they could interlibrary loan it. Um, huge shout out to the librarians. The librarians. Oh my god, I love that interlibrary. They loan are so much. literal rock stars at getting the information I request in like record speed. Oh, yeah. Like it just like it's quick. They're so speedy. My favorite on campus resource. Seriously, whatever school you're at. Yes. Love the library. My yeah. mother is a librarian, so she's gonna mm, love this whole yeah. thing. <laughs> like we we love the library. Mm-hmm. So I interlibrary loaned a copy and uh, drum roll please. Uh, there's no appendix. <laughs> there's no appendix in the hard copy book. Absolutely no appendix. So I, I I think next steps are to reach out to the publisher. Like, I'm going to have to go to the source. So hopefully we'll have another update for you. So another uh, cliffhanger. Yeah, another cliffhanger. cliffhanger. Um, hopefully we'll have an update for you again next month. But. <laughs> the publisher also does not have the appendix. Can you yeah. like, we'll, we'll find out. Um, so yeah. The mystery. The appendix. mystery of the missing appendix. Okay, so like we mentioned before, we're on Twitter, but we're also on other social media platforms. We're going to be highlighting a bit of a get-to-know-the-podcast member on Instagram. We've started a TikTok and check out the website. We have a lot of cool stuff being posted there pretty frequently. Try to keep the front page up to date with all the happenings that the podcast team is doing on Twitter. And we have new blogs coming out every now and again. Most recently, there's a blog about how to apply to grad school in approximately one year. And our Instagram handle is at scientists in training pod. And who has our TikTok? I think I just called it sit pod. S-I-T pod. So follow us there. See you next time. Bye. The Scientists in Training podcast is not associated with North Dakota State University. Any opinions expressed by the hosts, guests, are not reflective of the university.